We are continuing in 2 Peter chapter 2, and all of this chapter, these 22 verses, are a scathing denunciation against false teachers, against false prophets. We, in the first part of uh, chapter, in chapter 1, we heard and listened to uh, the exposition of the Word of God as Peter, uh, in his inspiration by the Holy Spirit laid out for us what is necessary for us to live a life of godliness and holiness and one that is pleasing to the Lord. He's building us up in the faith so that we will be able to stand and that we will be able to stand in an evil day and that we will be able to continue to move forward in a way that holds on to the word of God and holds on to the scriptures and holds on to the faith that's once delivered to the saints. And so now he's come though to this next part and we're continuing on here and we've gotten to verse, second part of verse 10, right at verse 10 through verse 16. And Caleb did a really fine job last week where, where he explained those three examples, how God did not spare the, the fallen angels, but is holding them in, into judgment until the time comes for him to pronounce that destruction upon them for their rebellion. He also did, spoke about uh, Noah and the flood and about all those who didn't believe and how Noah stayed faithful and how he continued to proclaim and preach God's word uh, for about 120 years while he was building the ark and people had plenty of times to repent but they didn't. They laughed and mocked and scorned until the day when Noah was called in with his wife and the three members of his family there, his sons and their three daughters, his three daughter-in-laws, eight people out of all the earth and all were wiped out. And yet God preserved Noah and his family. And then it talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and how God was able to deliver Lot and from that wicked place and his daughters and all the rest were totally destroyed with fire and brimstone, a picture of that great judgment that is to come upon evildoers. And then it talked about there at the end how God is able to continue to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And now we come to this section here, which is uh, uh, an, an especially, uh, especially uh, very strong worded passage about false teaching. And it's because Peter, being inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit and one who was uh, forgiven and restored and commissioned as the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and has written these things by the power of the Holy Spirit for our admonition, is making it clear to us that in the last days there are going to come those who will be false teachers. Jesus says they're wolves in sheep's clothing, that they come in and they... They come in unawares oftentimes, and they, uh, they look good to start with, but they really have evil motives and desires. And, and um, I was looking at a, at a poll uh, just, um, just a few weeks ago. It, it came out in a, in, a, in a magazine called The Washington, the, the Washington Word, and it was uh, a poll that is uh, done by the assessment the World, National Worldview Assessment Survey, 
annually conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, and George Barna is the one who put this uh, information out. And it said, according to the research, slightly more than one out of every three pastors of Christian churches, that is 37%, possess a biblical worldview. In other words, that, uh, that adoption of the basic scriptural principles and teaching that form the filter through which we experience, interpret, and respond to the world. While that is far better than what the inventory has discovered in the adult population among those who consider themselves Christian, just 9% of them have a biblical worldview. Or those who are theologically defined born-again Christians, 19% is a far cry from what most people expect. Found that 41% of senior pastors hold a biblical worldview. That 28% of assistant and associate pastors have a biblical worldview. 13% of teaching pastors and only a 4% of executive pastors. But perhaps most disturbing of all, however, is that a mere 12% of children's and youth pastors have a biblical worldview. That's a horrifying discovery because they are the spiritual leaders who work directly with the group of people who are forming the worldview that will carry, them, carry with them for life. And keep in mind that people typically develop a long a lifelong worldview before the age of 13. And in many respects, those who work with children are the most important church leaders of all, given the dramatic and lasting influence they exert on those who are most needy. And so it's an ongoing problem. And what, is the, what do you think is the reason for this, these horrible statistics? Well, I propose to you that it is merely because that in most of the churches throughout America, that there has been a lack of the solid, faithful preaching of the Word of God. And so, therefore, there have been many false teachings and teachers that have come in. And so now Peter is saying here, he's going to show us how we can see um, what their mindset or their attitudes is and also uh, what their behavior is like. And he says, here's the word of God, starting at verse 10 of chapter two, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So we see here that the first thing is that these people are arrogant. 
that they don't submit to authority. They're bold. They despise authority. They even speak about things that, which they know nothing about as though they're the only ones that have the complete uh, and final word upon it. And it speaks about here about how they uh, blaspheme the glorious ones. And that, that word there that is used there is doxa, from which we get doxology, which means glories, the glories. And it's difficult to translate whether it's talking about the fallen angels or whether it's talking about the angels that Jude is talking about over there where he's speaking about Michael, the archangel, who had a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses because Moses killed an Egyptian, and so he was disputing with him about that. And, and so, but even Michael, the archangel, did not rebuke him but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so, uh, but I think, and I, I believe that David Strain is right. I was researching uh, what he had on this. The glories is speaking about the glories of Christ in any way, shape, or form, that they despise the glories of Christ. And so, uh, they also are ignorant. They're like brute, brute beasts, thinking themselves to be wise. They become fools. They live by their own feelings. They're prideful. They invent new and innovative ideas. They have no humility. And in their behavior, we see that they are immoral, that they're lustful, they're sensual, they're greedy, they're manipulative, smooth talkers, especially preying on young believers so that they might be able to lead them astray to cause them to follow after them rather than following Christ and to cause them to uh, no longer seek the right way in Christ Jesus, but instead to apostatize the faith. And so uh, you see the, the categories here that these things fall in and about how it speaks about how they, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, that there is nothing sacred for them, that they can't get enough of their own pleasures and doing whatever they desire to do. Not in the nighttime when most people do things where it's dark and people might not notice it, but they do it in broad daylight. They're blots and blemishes, it said, at your love feast. They even did that when they had those feasts there when the Lord's Supper was instituted to start with and they would have a love feast and then they would have the Lord's Supper and people would come and these people would even get drunk at those love feasts. They quit having the love feast and started just having the Lord's Supper because of the abuses that were going on there and that how their eyes were full of adultery, insatiable for sin, that they're always looking at women whenever they see them and thinking about in their minds and in their imaginations and also in their thoughts about how they might be able to get into bed with them. And it doesn't make any difference to them whether they're married or unmarried or whatever else they are. They're also guilty of homosexuality, lesbianism, all kind of other things that go on that are so such an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. And so they entice these unsteady, unsteady souls. They, they have no heart for the souls of God's people. God cares for his sheep and his under shepherds care for his sheep. But the false prophets fleece the sheep. They're greedy. They're greedy for gain. And it speaks about here about Balaam and how he went along with Barak, Balak, the king of Moab. 
after Balaam came and talked to the Lord when Balak came and offered him uh, a big pile of money if he would come and curse the children of Israel who were there on his border. They hadn't attacked him. They hadn't done anything but to come and to curse them. And he went before the Lord said, wait, let me go find out. And he went before the Lord and the Lord said, you cannot curse this people because I have blessed them and I will bless them. And so then they started to go away and they said, wait a minute, let me go back and check with the Lord again and see if maybe I can, I can talk to him again and maybe he'll, he'll relent. And so God said, if it's, they want you to go with him, then if that's what they came and you want to go with them, you know, if they say go, then go. And although he knew it was wrong that he wasn't supposed to do that, God had made it clear to start with, but he went. And then the first time he goes with them, He's on this donkey that he's had evidently for a long time. And this donkey is, is going along and there's this, this angel that's sent from God's throne that came and stood right in the middle of the road. And, uh, and, and Balaam, uh, um, Balaam, the one who's supposed to be the prophet, he doesn't even see the angel, but the donkey does. And the donkey just kneels down he bows down to the angel right in the middle of the road. It's amazing. And Balaam's so mad because the donkey's not moving, and so he starts beating the donkey. And then he gets up and starts going again, and he gets to a place where it's closed in, and it's narrow, and he can't hardly get through there, and so... He's pinching his leg up against the wall that the donkey is because the angel is standing there blocking the way where he can't get through. And so he starts beating the donkey again and the donkey says, wait a minute, you know, how long have I been your donkey? Have I, have I ever done this kind of stuff to you before? You know? you know, I mean, the donkey starts talking. The donkey becomes the prophet. You know? He's got more sense than the prophet. Okay. I'm up here as the donkey. Okay. And it's good to be a donkey for God. Hmm. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Just let God use you and speak through you the way he wants to. Yeah. And that false prophet just went on anyway. And all for greed. All for greed. And wound up later on you see where he led the people of God into immorality and all kind of things out there. Uh, worshiping false gods and committing uh, sexual immorality out there and nobody would stand up for the Lord and they came a plague upon them and Phineas stood up for the Lord because one of the Israelites was having sex right there in an open tent right there in the midst of the camp in front of everybody and nobody was doing anything about it and Phineas took a sword and went inside and drove the, drove the spear all the way through the man and the woman at the same time, and God stopped the plague because he had a man to stand in the gap who would stand up for him and would be bold and say what God gave him to say and do what God called him to do. And God stopped the plague, but 22,000 people had died before then. That's how serious God takes this. But God is sending out warnings, and he's sending out warnings for you so that you will be able to recognize these false prophets and to, to know them and to flee from them. There's a, 
account here in October of 1855 at a time when society's views on the nature of biblical authority and human freedom were evolving and subject to change that Vincent van Gogh, the wildly, wildly talented yet tortured artist, completed an oil on canvas titled Still Life with Bible. Looking at it, one observes a table and upon the table an open Bible. To the right of God's word is a candle burned out, standing in its holder. In the foreground, the artist has painted a small yellow book. The print on the binding is still legible. It is Zemil Zola's The Joy of Life. By placing a burned out candle beside the Bible and by putting both in the background, Van Gogh is telling us that the time for walking through this world by the illumination of the Holy Spirit who shines down upon God's word is past. Biblical authority no longer holds sway. People are guided by different if not lesser lights. This is what he is saying. Even the flaming color of yellow is now reserved for the cover of another book. Humanity's new pursuit is governed by whatever brings us the joy of life. I tell you that the light of God's word has not gone out and it will never go out. And may we be faithful to proclaim that word in its truth at all times. The culture that we see now has become desperately wicked and has continued to usurp God's rule. There's no respect for authority. There's riots, there's looting, there's killing, there's injustice. There's all kind of things that are going on that are uh, absolute uh, acts of rebellion. And it's really rebellion against God and his authority because man wants to be the one who is God himself and he wants to be the one who rules everything. And so I, I wanted to read to you something here that uh, I just got in the mail this week and it's, it's before Congress right now and it's introduced as House Resolution 1209 called the Transgender Bill of Rights. This resolution would do the following. It would force places of worship to either promote LGBTQ activities or face devastating court fees and bankruptcy. It will make abortion a federal right through all nine months of pregnancy, overriding every state law. It will demand that every medical center and professional medical provider provide a, perform abortions and sex change surgeries and offer drug prescriptions. It will destroy gender privacy in every locker room, bathroom, and shower room outside private homes. It will force all Christian and religious organizations, businesses, and schools to hire transgenders for leadership roles. It will silence those wanting to be freed from same-sex attractions or behavior and gender confusion. It will enact many other bigoted directives that would effectively criminalize religious freedom in America, and there are zero religious exemptions in this resolution. They're doing things up there in secret that they don't tell the people about, that we don't know about, and they're passing these things or trying to get these things passed, and it's amazing to me how People can do such horrible things to little children. Little children, elementary children, that they want to change their sex, teach them all these horrible doctrines at their young age and when their tender minds are so ready to absorb and to be taught the things of God and to be taught his word. That's what was so great about VBS and that's why we're so thankful for that. 
But there's too many places where that's not happening. And so we, we pray that the Lord would rise up and people would rise up. But Jesus says, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bear, bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor, one, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. This all goes back to Genesis. Now, I want you to know some things about false teachers that I just picked out a few here I wrote down that you can recognize a false teacher. They never speak of holiness or the glory of God. They never speak of sin. They never speak of the cross. They never speak of hell or the final judgment. They deny the second coming. They deny the resurrection of Christ and his ascension. They deny the virgin birth. They denied the need for substitutionary atonement by a perfect sacrificial sin bearer who is Jesus Christ. The key is, who do they say Christ is? They don't say he's fully God. They might say he's the highest of all the created beings, but he's really not God. They don't say he's God in the flesh. They don't say that he's perfect, that he's just a good teacher that he didn't really work any miracles, that there's nothing that's happened supernatural, that these things are just myths and fairy tales. Just prior to the French Revolution, there was a Frenchman named Monsieur Le Pou, or Le Pau, I don't know, my French is not good. He was talking to the statesman, Bishop Talleyrand. Le Pau was quite disappointed at his failure to gain a following for his new religion, which he regarded as an improvement on Christianity. He asked Talleyrand what he should do. Talleyrand replied, this is one plan that you might at least try. I recommend that you be crucified and rise again on the third day. <laughs> That's it. Back in around 1952, the start of this prosperity gospel movement. It was started by this man, by Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. It says the book is written to suggest techniques and to give examples which demonstrate that you don't need to be defeated by anything, that you can have peace of mind, improved health, and a never ceasing flow of energy. In short, that your life can be fully of joy and satisfaction. He went on to say that he believed that we live in a world that is mental more than physical and this allows our thoughts to be determinative. If this is the case, all that stands between us and our desires is properly controlling our thoughts. He taught it as a minister who claimed to be a Christian, yet as a Christian minister, he denied that God was a being saying, who is God? Some theological being, he is so much greater than theology. God is vitality. God is life. God is energy. As you breathe God in, as you visualize his energy, you will be re-energized. You need to be born again. You need to be regenerated. 
and there is no hope for anyone unless he's been regenerated. On the Phil Donahue show back years ago, he said, it's not necessary to be born again. You have your way to God, I have mine. I have found an eternal peace in a Shinto shrine. I've been to Shinto shrines and God is everywhere. Christ is one of the ways, God is everywhere. He denied the very heart of the Christian faith and replaced it with his doctrine of positive thinking. And some of those who heard him and followed him were Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, and Tony Robbins, and many others. I remember hearing Joel Osteen one time on, on, uh, on a TV show, and the, the guy who was the MC for the show asked him, says, Pastor Osteen, what do you attribute to your great success in being able to fill up the Houston Astrodome with these great crowds of people? And it was on Larry King Live. Now I remember who it was. And he said, well, Larry, he said, it's really quite simple. We just don't talk about anything negative. So you don't talk about sin. So you can't get saved because you're not ever considered to be in that bad of shape to be lost. I'll tell you another modern day one that you need to watch out for is Al Sharpton. I watched Al Sharpton do Michael Jackson's funeral. Millions of watching that on TV, millions, about an hour and a half. And all he did was give praise and glory to a man named Michael Jackson, and he never once spoke about Jesus Christ and never once proclaimed the gospel and how you might be saved. That great opportunity passing by because he's a false prophet. Jesus gave the story about the parable of the seed and how the devil comes and takes that seed away before it can sprout. And I wanted to close here with this great illustration here. And this is the reason why we believe that God's word is what makes the difference because we see its power. And the more and more that we see it proclaimed in good churches and we have to hold on to this word everywhere we are. I praise God for this church and for the leadership that we have here with Caleb Cangelosi, Carl McDowell, and Dean Williams, and also with, with Christian Brewer. Praise God that we got men that stand up and preach and proclaim the truth and don't back down, but tell it like it is because God's glory and honor and souls are at stake. In the late spring of 1808, the USS Topaz dropped anchor in the bay of a small isolated island in the South Pacific. The name of that island was Pitcairn. You may remember that name from one of the most famous or infamous incidents in naval history. Several years before the Topaz visited that island, it became well known because that was the final destination of the mutineers who took over the British ship, the Bounty. These men set Captain Bly and his loyal followers adrift in an open lifeboat. They managed to sail and row 2,300 miles and finally reached land safely on an island just off the coast of Australia. And from there, they returned to England with their report of the mutiny on the bounty. The mutineers, led by the first mate, Christian, realized they would be hunted down. And so they sailed the bounty to this little isolated island, sank their ship just off the coast, then made their way to land and attempted to establish a colony. 
There were nine British sailors, six Polynesian men, and 11 Polynesian women, one of whom was only 15 years old. One of the sailors discovered a way of making alcohol, and soon the combination of drunkenness, competition over the women, and the absence of any semblance of law and order produced violence, rape, and murder. The colony became a virtual cesspool of vice and corruption. Christian himself was murdered by one of his own men. The British sailors and the Polynesian men fought repeatedly, and in the end, only one British sailor, Alexander Smith, survived. Then an amazing thing happened. Smith was going through some of the chest that had been saved when the bounty was sunk, and he discovered a Bible. He began to read it and soon came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He set out to teach others the truths he had found in God's word. What a hopeless task it would be. How could one man possibly rescue such a colony of criminals? But when the topaz dropped anchor in that lonely bay and when the captain and part of the crew went ashore with deep apprehension of what they might find, much to their amazement, they found a thriving, prosperous Christian community. Alcohol had been completely banished. There was no jail or need for one, for there was no crime. There was no mental institution, but there was a church, a school, and an island full of believers who had rebuilt their lives individually and collectively around the Word of God. Truly, the discovery of the Bible had transformed that little community. May we continue to proclaim the truths from the word of the living God found in his Bible. May God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you give us warnings about those who would lead us astray. You care too much about us. You love souls. You came to seek and to save us. Oh, we thank you so much that you warn us so that we might fall, not fall into those traps, that you deliver us from the snare of the fowler. Oh, we know he goes about like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may destroy. But, oh, God, you will, we cry out to you, and we ask that you would not let our foot, feet be ensnared in that net. We pray that you would cause us instead to be able to walk on that narrow path that continues to lead to heaven and to glory. We pray that you would cause us to put to death sin that desires to rule over us, that we would mortify flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God itself. Oh, Lord Jesus, please continue to speak to us. Have your way with us. And, oh, God, we pray that you would deliver us from women preachers. That's another abomination in your church. We pray also, Lord, that you would deliver young people now who are desirous to have themselves, young women who desire to have themselves sterilized, who go against what your word says to multiply and to go forth and spread throughout the earth so that you might have many children to bring to glory. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to once again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, return to those solid foundations that we sang about, how firm a foundation in the faith of the Lord is found in your scriptures, in your holy word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.